How does the life insurance secondary market work when it frees up cash for your older client's new insurance needs? And what are the investment opportunities in that market? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. In an earlier podcast on Shift Shapers, we spoke to Lisa Rayberg, and Lisa operates in life settlements, but she operates more at the advisor level. And there was enough interest from enough listeners who said, we'd like to know more about kind of the other side of the coin. What happens with the company that's one she works with, for example, and how their perspective looks and what the marketplace looks like from their side of the table. And so I did the intelligent thing, I think. And I said, Elisa, well, fine. Who do you suggest? And she said, you should talk to Brian Clark. And we are. Brian is Director of Business Development at Reliant Life Shares. And with that lengthy preamble, welcome, Brian. Thank you, David. Good to be here. Thanks. Now, one thing that the audience should know is that you guys practice in California. And so we're going to try to keep the conversation not California specific, but kind of very high level. But if you if you have questions, we'll make it easy for you to reach out to Brian to ask them. So with that, let's, I mean, we asked Lisa the same question. So let's ask you, you know, what is a life settlement and who benefits from using them? Great question. And I think there can be a couple groups of people that benefit. Certainly on the side that you spoke with Lisa about, that's where a senior who no longer needs, wants, or can afford a life insurance policy, they have the opportunity rather than just letting it lapse or rather than cashing it in for whatever cash surrender value the insurance company would be willing to give them, they have the opportunity to sell that in the secondary market to an investor group. Now, obviously, the investor group is looking to make a profit. And they're able, uh, in a lot of cases, to pay more than the cash surrender value, often uh, multiples, three to five times, as the Wharton Business School study on this subject concluded, three to five times more cash surrender value. So a senior that has a life insurance policy and they're thinking of, of getting rid of it, either through cashing in or lapsing it, they really ought to explore selling it because they can put more money in their pocket And that's where Lisa and folks like her come into play, where they can help uh, broker that policy out to investor groups. Now, once it's sold, the investor group is waiting for the death benefit payout. And in our case, we open up investment on a fractional basis to investors, individual investors, because historically the buyers of this have been big players like the Warren Buffetts of the world, Blackstone, national pension funds, big banks, et cetera. But what we do is help individual investors participate in this asset class. And there's reasons why they would want to do that as a diversifier away from all the usual suspects, as I call it, stocks, bonds, you know, cash, interest rate, vehicles, et cetera. Because um, when these death benefits pay out, obviously that has nothing to do 
with all the other stuff they're invested in. Right. So they don't carry market risk per se and some of the other risks that you'd consider with uh, securities. Exactly. And that's the true diversification that I think an exposure to life settlement investing can bring to investors, you know, when they've already got stock risk, they've already got real estate risk. And in this low interest rate environment we find ourselves in, especially now, what choice do you have? And so if you can take some of your money, put it in something that, you know, really won't be affected if the market goes down or if the Fed does something with rates or if the real estate market, you know, goes down, um, this is something that should be immune to that. You know, I guess suppose barring an Armageddon scenario where, you know, insurance companies are all going to zero, but my guess is if that happens, we all have bigger problems. Absolutely. So on the secondary side, how do you calculate a rate of return to talk to investors about? Well, it's a somewhat complicated formula, but it boils down to, you know, how much did we have to pay for the policy? What was the policy worth? And that's driven largely by uh, how old the insured is, what their health conditions are, because typically what we're finding is the seniors that are interested in selling the policy, they're now older than they were when they got the policy issued. And a lot of times they are less healthy than they were when they got the policy issued. And so that all factors in um, what the premiums look like relative to the death benefit or face amount on the policy. All those factors come into play and a rate of return you know, is is usually t- targeted in the high single or low double digit uh, annual type rates of return for investors. Could be better, could be worse, but that's really what we're targeting. And so it ends up being, you know, hopefully a, an attempt at market-like returns, but without that market volatility. So if I'm a an investor on the secondary side, what I'm investing in is a, for lack of a better word, a bundle of these policies or a grouping or, or a a cohort of some kind of these policies? Correct. I mean, there are people that, that um, buy in whole individual policies whereby they own the whole thing once the in- owner sells it to them. But in our case, what we're doing is we're fractionalizing it because we realize not everybody has the wherewithal to come up with all the cash needed to buy a, an entire policy. So we fractionalize it and essentially the person ends up with a portfolio of multiple policies on multiple insureds you know, with multiple health issues so that, you know, you're basically getting some diversification with your diversifier, if that makes sense. Sure. What's the mix, if there is a rule of thumb or something that you see on a regular basis of term to permanent contracts, whether those are whole life, UL or or whatever? Well, for what we're doing on the investment side, we really don't mess with term unless it's a convertible term, in which case it'll be converted to a permanent policy. You know, UL is, is really the the one that the type of policy we like to use because we're trying to take out any variable risk, any term risk. And so a, a term policy, as I'm sure um, Lisa probably discussed with you, can be sold, but usually it's a convertible term before its conversion date and or deadline. And therefore it becomes a permanent policy. So we're trying to take out all the variables we can. And so universal life typically becomes the spot that makes good sense. Although other you know, situations, other investor groups may l- want to look at other types of policies. So does dealing with convertible term get you less heartburn, let's say, from carriers? You know, I, I think from my understanding, you know, most of the carriers don't love life settlements, right? Because they simply would prefer a person to not, you know, 
sell the policy so that they have to eventually pay out a death benefit. They'd probably prefer the person to lapse it or cash it in. Thereby, they took in money and never had to pay out the death benefit. So in general, my experience has been they don't love it. However, I think insurance companies, you know, certainly can't be seen and don't want to be seen as telling, you know, a senior that they can't access value in a policy above and beyond what the cash surrender value is because that would end up hurting that senior. So I think everybody in the industry acknowledges the benefit this can have if done appropriately, you know, for both seniors selling it as well as investors buying it. Let's go back to the, to the question of risk. What are the risks, if any, to the buyer of, of the investment? Great question. A lot of times these are illiquid investments. So liquidity, you know, should be obviously a primary concern when you consider any investment. The time horizon involved, you know, a lot of times we operate with life expectancy estimates between three and eight years, typically, you know, not shorter than two and and not longer than eight. But a, a person with an eight year life expectancy certainly could live twice that long or longer. And so longevity risk really becomes a primary risk to the investment. Now, when these people pass away and the death benefit gets paid and the the gain is realized, you know, that is at least different risk than all the rest of an investor's portfolio is going to be exposed to. But really liquidity risk and longevity risk where the person lives longer and of course premiums must still be paid until they do pass in order to realize the death benefit. So those become really the primary risks. There are other risks, of course, and you know anyone considering investing should certainly consult their tax, legal, and financial advisor to understand those risks before they do invest with anything, really. Oh, of course. And now, a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, back to our discussion. So you're not an insurance company. Correct. And you're not a mutual fund. Who regulates this stuff, if, if anybody? Well, certainly depending on the structure of an offering, it could be the SEC, it could be, uh, you know, a state regulator here in California. And the reason we operate in California is there's uh, unique legislation on the books and the Department of Business Oversight. They're the primary regulator, certainly the Department of Insurance, because what's needed in order to offer this in California is an insurance license. They would, you know, could also be involved, but primarily here in California, uh, thanks to the passing of a Senate bill back in the year 2000, Senate Bill 1837, uh, the Department of Business Oversight's the primary regulator that we operate under. But state to state, you know, certainly, um, you know, other entities, uh, including the SEC, you know, would be involved. So if I'm an investor and I want to diversify my portfolio by using some of these fractional shares, what's that process like? 
Well, I think an understanding of what kinds of policies um, you're potentially going to invest in, what sort of time horizon, how long are you going to have to wait for the payout, is the offering trying to spin off income along the way. There's been models where they try and you know, provide current income along the way, like other investments. Uh, with our model, we really you know, make it clear that up to a certain point, premiums are covered as part of the original investment. But if the insured lives beyond that, that's where you know, what we call premium call risk. In other words, the, the risk of having to pay additional premiums comes into play. But really, I think it's uh, the time horizon. What's the life expectancy? Do you get to see the medical conditions? You know, our firm, we disclose, you know, the medical conditions that the insured has. Obviously, you know, we don't disclose their name and address and personal information beyond, you know, their generic, you know, health information. But you understand their age, you know, height, weight, sex. And the more you can know about that, I think, can help an investor decide if this looks like something that makes sense for them, if there's no information provided, I, I would be wary because, you know, for all you know, you don't, you don't know how long the person might be expected to live and, and you don't have any judgment for yourself in estimating that. But I would say look for companies that disclose the information on the insured and are using outside third-party underwriting laboratories versus maybe coming up with the life expectancy in-house because that, you know, obviously could create a conflict of interest. If someone is offering you a life insurance policy and they're telling you, oh, this person's expected to live three years, well, what's that based on? Was that based on a thorough review of the medical records and a sound methodology in determining uh, how long this person might be expected to live? If so, okay, maybe three years is a good estimate. But if they're just, you know, flying by the seat of their pants and coming up with that, that would be something I would be cautious of. So if, if I'm a smart broker and I have a client who might fit the profile of somebody who could take advantage of this opportunity, I can go through somebody like Lisa, et cetera. But on the secondary side, how do I access this market? Do, do I do it through a financial planner or through some other kind of specialist? Do I do it directly? Yeah, I think you, you'll find that a a captive insurance agent is probably not going to be able to offer this because they work for an insurance company. Ultimately, you may find that certain advisors with a broker dealer may not have this in their offering set. But if you get to, you know, a truly independent uh, life insurance agent, uh, maybe a registered investment advisor that has some life insurance involved in their business, that's probably your best bet. Um, certainly the, you know, in this day and age, you know, a good internet search of life settlement investment opportunities uh, would be a good place to start. And of course, if you're in California, you know, we'd love to help you as well. If I'm an insurance advisor in that category, do I also need to be securities licensed? It depends on the type of offering you're using. In our case, because this is an exempted security in California, all you need is a life license. However, depending on who you're dealing with in terms of the you know life settlement investment company and the structure, you certainly may need to be securities licensed to be able to offer it, especially in other states. And again, that's why we've stuck to California because, you know, we like the clear cut and dry regulation as part of the Department of Business Oversight law that lays out who can offer this, namely somebody with a life license who can invest in it, someone who's financially qualified. And they define that here in California, at least as someone with a quarter million of net worth, not counting their home vehicles and home furnishings. But a lot of offerings uh, that might be in other states that might require a securities license, they might require the investor to be an accredited investor. But either way, the, the point is not to keep the small investor out, but rather make sure that an investor 
you know, has, has checked the boxes on probably the usual more liquid investments before they dive into something like this. So again, it's, it's not to keep the person out, but you wouldn't want to have somebody, you know, put their last $50,000 into an investment, you know, that's illiquid, right? So that's the idea. You mentioned earlier on, I know we're kind of bopping around a little bit, but you mentioned earlier on that it's entirely possible that people will live twice the life expectancy that's predicated. And it brings up a question that I know has been raised in other venues, which is, does the average person who invest, who settles one of these policies as who owns the policy, do they need to have some kind of dread disease or a shortened, a provable, shortened, reasonable life expectancy? Or can a healthy person sell a policy? I'm not going to say that a healthy person cannot sell their policy, but the younger the person is and the healthier a person is, typically the less they'll command for being able to sell their policy because, uh, you know, let's just use two extreme examples. If if you were going to inv- buy the life insurance policy off of a 24-year-old Olympian who's in great health and great shape, I mean, how long is that person going to live, right? And how long are you going to have to wait before the death benefit gets paid out? It could be, you know, decades, right? Probably not a good investment on the other end of the spectrum, if we somehow knew I had five minutes to live and I had a life insurance policy, you know, obviously you might be willing to pay more for that approaching the, the death benefit uh, value. And so it's really a range. Typically, you know, you're, you're looking at people 65 and older. If someone has, you know, a significant health impairment, possibly a terminal illness, a life expectancy under two years, that'd be termed what's called in the industry, a viatical life settlement. And I'm contrasting that to what we're really talking about, which is known as senior life settlements, where we take the same concept, but move it really more towards the end of life phase. And that does a couple things for you, right? If you have a 45-year-old and they have a certain illness or two and they get cured of that, you got a 45-year-old and they could live a while. But you take someone who's already 80 or 85 with multiple health issues, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we haven't come up with a cure for everything. You know, I don't know what the world would be like if people lived, you know, forever, but I think at the the reality is people are not living forever. And with those health issues later in life, I think the underwriting estimates can get more accurate. And so that becomes something to consider. You know, but this is certainly not an unusual product. A lot of us have been aware of it for quite a number of years, especially those of us who began our careers who have a life insurance portion to their career, but it's maybe not as well known and, and, and not as out there as some other things. Do you find that you get negative reactions to this? And, and if you do, what kind of objections do you hear? Well, the first one, and, and some of your listeners may be thinking this right now is, oh, geez, Brian, this sounds like a morbid way to make money, right? You're making money off the people passing away. When in reality, let's look at an example and see whether it's morbid or, or actually socially responsible. If you have an 80-year-old who, for whatever reason, um, doesn't need the policy anymore, maybe the person they were going to leave the money to when they pass predeceased them, maybe a car accident, child died in a car accident, who knows, it could be anything. But if they now are, are looking at cashing in a million-dollar policy, for example, as an 80-year-old, and maybe they've built up $50,000 of cash value, well, that might be one thing to consider. But if they find out that due to their age and health, they might be able to command 200000 for that policy still leaving a margin in there for premiums to be paid and for a death benefit profit to be made by the investor, that extra 150000 could be meaningful to that senior and might be the difference between being able to afford in-home care or having to go into a facility or you know what, what their last years are like. It's going to really enhance that. So if tomorrow they suddenly made 
it illegal to sell your policy, I think the the person that would be hurt the most is that senior who now has to settle for 50 or maybe nothing versus, you know, 200,000 in my example. And so I think getting past that and really understanding how the insurance industry works, the lapse ratio that's priced in, you know, this will always be, I think, a small component to the overall life insurance industry, but it can really be meaningful and helpful to somebody who wants to sell their policy. And then once sold, the question is, hey, do you want to let, uh, you know, somebody like Warren Buffett or Blackstone profit, or would you like to participate as an individual investor, especially given where the markets are currently, uh, where interest rates are, I think the diversifying component that life settlements offers really can make a lot of good sense. Well, and to be honest, if you peel it all the way back, selling life insurance is a morbid way to make a buck, but it is very socially responsible. I mean, you know, it, it's you can get too fine a point on these things. And um, while I understand that objection, I think the, the opportunity for somebody who's in that situation to free up that much cash for quality of life or care or whatever at the at the latter stages of their life is just huge. I think so. And if it really can be a win-win-win, you know, if insurance companies collect additional premiums for the years that these folks, you know, keep the policy, you know, the, the new investors, and they have to pay out a death benefit on some extra policies in order to help seniors and, you know, frankly, benefit investors, I, I don't think that's a, a bad thing. Uh, and, I, and again, I think it's always going to be a niche type of situation. It's it's not going to be every other life insurance policy sold is going to end up, you know, becoming a life settlement. I, I, I just don't believe that that's going to ever be the case. One last question. Uh, mm-hmm. To the extent that you're aware, is this available in all states or are there states where it's precluded? I am not aware of a state where it's not allowed, but I definitely think you need to understand the structure and licensing required to be able to participate in it. And you know, just with a good understanding of that, go in eyes, eyes open, educate yourself before participating in it, then, you know, you reduce the chance of having any issue. And that's a great place to end our conversation today. Brian Clark, Director of Business Development at Reliant Life Shares. Brian, thanks for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. 